Hey folks, it's Jared, episode 400. We've done 250 of these now since relaunch and we're not slowing down. My guests today are Dr. Aaron Hannibal and Aristeo Dharmawan, and we're going to discuss their article on Unclos Article 51 and its impact on the Indonesia-Singapore relationship. This episode was edited and produced by Alexia Buolagi. At SimSec, we believe victory in the maritime domain starts with great ideas communicated compellingly. Right, fight, win. Please help us continue to fulfill our mission by donating and making SimSec your preferred nonprofit on Amazon Smile. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters. Whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a SimSec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of local chapters and contact information on our website at simsec.org, so if you're interested, please reach out and get involved. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, posted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shamates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guests today are Dr. Aaron Hannibal and Aristeo Dharmawan, and we're discussing their paper, Article 51 of UNCLOS at 40, Military Training as Other Legitimate Activities. So, gentlemen, welcome aboard. Aaron, could you start by introducing yourself to listeners, please? Um, hi, yes. Thank you, Jared, for having us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and we hope that your listeners enjoy reading or hearing about our article as much as we did writing it. Um, as mentioned, my name is Aaron Honnable. Uh, originally, I do come from the United Kingdom, but I've predominantly been conducting law of the sea research in other states uh, since leaving the UK about a decade ago to pursue a master's in public international law. Um, so once hooked, I've kind of been focused on oceans law, since then, uh, in particular, the combating of IU fishing, which was the main focus of my PhD manuscript. Um, and today I'm based in the Max Planck Foundation in Heidelberg, Germany. Well, thanks again for coming aboard. Aristio, could you tell the listeners a little bit about your background, please? All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jared, for having us. So I'm, I'm Aristio Darmawan. I am currently a lecturer in international law at the Faculty of Law Universitas Indonesia, where I'm also co-director of the Center for Sustainable Oceans Policy. And now I'm also a visiting fellow with the uh, Astra Jaratnam School for International Studies at the uh, Nanyang Technological University. So my research question is basically more on the uh, maritime security and the law of the sea in Asia-Pacific regions, with particular uh, the South China Sea dispute. Well, thank you very much. And as a reminder the listeners, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. So, Arisio, I'll start with you for the first question. The paper examines Article 51 through the lens of the Indonesia-Singapore relationship. So can you explain for listeners what that relationship has been like historically? Uh, so basically, the our article is dealing with how Indonesia and Singapore uh, have a different uh, uh, perspective on the interpretation of Article 51. Is basically dealing with the issues of whether or not Singapore has the right of traditional military training area in Indonesia's archipelagic water. It's it started uh, back with the absence of the De- defense cooperation agreement between Indonesia and Singapore, where it was initially regulated that uh, Singapore have the right for uh, conducting military training area in Indonesia archipelagic water and with the absence of the defense cooperation agreement which was uh, initially agreed until 2003 singapore argues still that even though with the absence of the uh, defense cooperation agreement singapore still can conduct a military training area in indonesia's archipelagic water because of the uh, the right is actually granted under the article 51 of UNCLOS under the term other legitimate activities so basically our research is trying to interpret whether or not it's actually 
the meaning of other legitimate activities under Article 51. So then we go through the historical interpretations uh, of uh, UNCLOS. We go through the historical document. We saw some of the uh, commentaries of the negotiating histories of Article 51 uh, and other negotiating documents. And then we, uh, starting from that, I think we we see and we try to interpret what's included in the term other legitimate activities. And we find out initially quite interesting that actually the Article 51 is actually drafted jointly by Indonesia and Singapore. Uh, of course, I think if we go back to that time, Singapore is a very small country, uh, very much uh, concerned about Indonesia claim of archipelagic waters, which basically take all of the water, more of the waters in Southeast Asia or in the regions. Uh, so then uh, Singapore uh, want to assure that they still have the rights of the activities that previously been conducted uh, in the uh, area. So Singapore tried to push that Indonesia should respect and recognize the rights of traditional fishing uh, rights, as well as the other legitimate activities, which included initially the military training area in the Indonesian's uh, archipelagic water. So that's well, how what we found. And it's really, of course, uh, influenced the bilateral relationships between Indonesia and Singapore uh, up until now. I think, uh, Dr. Aaron, if you want to add something on that? Um, yes, yeah, so I'm not an international relations expert uh, at all. So I, I cannot approach it from a political perspective. But I think if we yeah, just build on that also from an international law perspective, uh, you can see that the relationship, at least at the bilateral level, has been consistently strong, even when there have been disagreements that have arose. So if you think about maritime delimitation, um, we see that the, the boundaries between Singapore and Indonesia have been largely settled through these sort of progressive extensions of the agreed boundary. Uh, and even after the 2007 DCA broke down, uh, which Richard mentioned, uh, we did shortly thereafter see in 2009 this extension of the territorial sea boundary, at least uh, in the western side of the Strait of Singapore. So there's just now sort of these two tiny bits remaining at each end of the Strait of Singapore to delimit between the two states. Or this might be a bit complicated by uh, the need for a trilateral agreement there as well. Another example would be if you, if you think about piracy and armed robbery at sea, you know, even though Indonesia is not a party to this, this recap agreement for its own reasons, it does still participate and sort of uh, cooperate through the information sharing center that is based in Singapore. So Aaron, what was in the 2022 expanded framework agreements and why were those agreements so important for Indonesia and Singapore? Yes. Yeah, so this, um, this sort of 2022 Framework agreement uh, is expanded because in the previous 2007, we're only talking about two agreements. Uh, in 2022, we now have sort of these four basic agreements. Um, so the first one we have is the agreement on the realignment of the boundaries uh, between the Jakarta flight information region uh, and the Singapore flight information region. This is basically for the interest of Indonesia has long been requesting the idea that these are realigned because up until now, um, Singapore has sort of exercised within its flight information region, areas of Indonesia's archipelagic waters uh, and territory around Riau and Natuna Islands. It's basically trying to realign that with its territorial boundaries as a sort of exercise of sovereignty over its territory and waters. And then for Singapore, within that framework, its interests are principally in the areas of sort of expanding its airport usage. So you know that Changi is still expanding. I think they're started groundworks on the next terminal. So within this, there will be a delegation agreement to Singapore concerning the provision of air navigation services around the Changi area, at least for 25 years, with the possibility um, for, for renewal. So that's the sort of first leg of this 2022 package. 
The second leg then is the uh, Treaty for the Extradition of Fugitives, uh, which in 2022 only has sort of minor amendments from the 2007 edition. And this was sort of added sort of late in the game in the interest of both states to try and successfully conclude the 2022 package. And um, so we know that at least as late as 2020, this was not part of the package, but sort of was then re-added, try and get it over the finishing line. So again, Indonesia has long sort of extended cooperation here in terms of extradition from Singapore for certain suspected corruption cases. And Singapore in turn then stresses the sort of rule of law approach and an idea that this was already a concession that was signaled back in 2007. So it's not that hard to reimagine it in the 2022 package. The third leg then is sort of what we focus on, which is sort of this joint statement between the defense ministers of both states, um, sort of reviving that 2007 defense cooperation agreement um, and implementing agreement. Uh, So that's what we really focus on in terms of Article 51 uh, and the question of military training activities. Uh, And then that final package is uh, an exchange of letters between the, the two heads of states, which talks about bringing into force all these agreements uh, simultaneously. Um, so we're always talking about sort of package a deal because by and large, each state since 2005 has been imagining this as a package deal. Um, so you're going to give concessions in one area to get advantage in another area. Obviously, all these topics don't logically fit within a single treaty. So you have sort of different agreements on each, but you want to make sure that all the benefits for your state come at the same time as all the benefits for the other state. Um, and I think so far, perhaps correct me if I'm wrong, so far I think Indonesia has ratified now the, the Flight Information Region Agreement, uh, and we're just waiting for progress on the, the other two agreements for both states. So we've talked around, and Aristio covered a little bit of this in his uh, initial answer, and I'm not sure he wants to respond here, but what, what is that, the actual substance of Article 51 of UNCLOS, and then what was its genesis? Sorry, if I start a little bit about the genesis of Article 51, I think it's, it's a very much important article, which is, uh, aims to for Singapore to recognize Indonesia as an archipelagic water. So what are basically uh, regulated under the Article 51 of, of UNCLOS? So basically, the Article 51 is dealing with a couple of uh, structure. So the first part of Article 51 is very much dealing with the obligations of an archipelagic state. First, I think uh, the archipelagic state shall uh, respect uh, the existing agreement with other states. So if there's already an existing agreement before the recognition of an archipelagic state, the agreement still should be respected by Indonesia. And the second obligation is to uh, recognize the traditional fishing rights. So for example, we have the agreement with Malaysia in, in respect to traditional fishing rights. So if there's a traditional fisherman of Malaysians which already taken fish in that particular waters, and then they, after the recognition of the archipelagic state regimes, the particular waters become the Indonesian archipelagic waters. So the traditional fishing rights still should be respected. Of course, uh, then uh, the implementation is by using a separate agreement as well. And the third is the other legitimate activities of the immediately adjacent neighbor states. So it's really, there's a big questions here and what activities that considered as a legitimate under UNCLOS Article 51, right? So then uh, that's the, the particular thing that we uh, discussed earlier. So uh, the legitimate activities. So the first part, I think uh, the first sections of Article 51 is dealing with the obligations of archipelagic states. And then the second part, I think it's dealing with the term and conditions on how this uh, obligation should be applied. And it's it's stated that for the exercise such rights and activities, including the nature, the extent, and the areas to which they apply, shall at the request of any of the states concerned be regulated by the bilateral agreements. So then the debate has come here on whether or not the bilateral agreement is really a prerequisite for the obligations to be implemented. 
right? So then we also dealing with the uh, such a, a several practice. I think if we see the practice of uh, traditional fishing rights, for example, between Indonesia and Malaysia, they have the special bilateral agreements that dealing with traditional fishing rights. But based on our research and based uh, going through some of the documents, uh, is actually some would argue that the bilateral agreement is not a mandatory. While, it, of course, if it's uh, one some of the part they needed the agreements, uh, they can negotiate a particular uh, treaty uh, on that specifically. So basically, the Article Fifty One is dealing with the obligations for an archipelagic state to be recognized uh, as an archipelagic state and also what other prerequisites or terms and conditions for their obligations uh, can be applied. And what's the significance of the phrase other legitimate activities? What are the different ways that countries could interpret Article 51? When we're interpreting this, I think it's worth uh, emphasizing that, uh, as previously mentioned, this was largely uh, negotiated between the Southeast Asian states uh, themselves. Um, so amazing, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and Thailand. And that's why we place such great emphasis on this practice in terms of subsequent practice on the interpretation and application of this article. When we look specifically at other legitimate activities, you know, this was principally designed between uh, Indonesia and Singapore. And it's, it's sort of highly significant phrase um, because it's sort of purposely ambiguous um, wording, which sort of allowed this consensus to build. And then we eventually have an agreement on the entire archipelagic say, regime. If there had not been agreement on the archipelagic sea regime, I don't know if the states we're talking about now would have been party to UNCLOS or if UNCLOS would have gone over the finishing line. So in that sense, I think it's, it's quite important that we had this sort of agreement on Article 51. And yeah, so that ambiguity allows this sort of differences of interpretation to, to continue. So you might interpret it restrictively uh, in, t- in terms of then linking it back to those traditional fishing rights and say, well, we're talking about traditional legitimate activities, uh, which some authors also suggest. Uh, but you might also liberally interpret it uh, sort of in, to, to accommodate future or evolving legitimate interests. The, the wording of the article might suggest and which the practice kind of suggests as well. And then whether it includes military training or not, obviously the Singaporean delegation felt it was sufficiently captured within this phrase. As a matter of it, the Singapore delegation <laughs> thought it was uh, sufficiently captured within the phrase of uh, other legitimate activities when they talk about military training, uh, while the Indonesians also feel that it's sort of this continuous ambiguity, ambiguity allows us to continue the discussion on terms of uh, the exact terms and conditions that will be placed on that to continue reaffirming and protecting the sovereignty of the archipelagic state, particularly also then when it comes to joint activity. So I'd like to go off script for a second here and ask you both a little bit about why this is significant for Singapore and Indonesia. Where would the Singaporean Navy be limited to operating if not for Article 51? I would, I would imagine like within like six miles of their own coast because you can't exercise in the Singapore Strait. So, and then how does this work? And follow-up question to that would be, how does this then work in practice? Does Singapore have to notify the Indonesians when they want to go out and use a specific area or how does that, how does that work? So basically, yeah, um, Singapore would be what we classify as a geographically disadvantaged state. Um, so obviously it's very circumscribed geographically. Um, it does have a claim to a, an EEZ, but we don't know exactly where that would be. In terms of nearby areas that it can conduct military training activities, that was, that was the main emphasis of why it wanted to agree Article 51, because, you know, prior to UNCLOS, it did conduct activities in these waters, which were at that time high seas waters. The archipelagic sea regime didn't exist within international law per se. And so it wanted to continue having a nearby area. Obviously, it has defense cooperation agreements. With other states, I think Australia is one example where it can conduct 
training activities there, but obviously you, you might want to do things nearby. You might not want to travel every single time. Uh, so that was, yeah, its main interest. The procedural issues are detailed in the agreements. So the 1995 agreement, which did come into force, is the one that we've seen practice for. It was in operation for about 10 years. And then the, the 2007 agreement, which has been revived, then also has detailed uh, procedures, also in terms of future cooperation. Um, so if both parties want to continue deepening their cooperation, um, they can do through this sort of oversight committee. Richard, perhaps you have more? Yeah, if I, if I might add a little bit, I think it's the term under legitimate activities under Article 51 is very much important for Singapore. I think as, as we all aware that Singapore is, have a very significant uh, technology, uh, Navy capacity and et cetera. So Singapore really need a place to doing an exercises basically. And, uh, as what Aaron said, Singapore is considered as a geographically disadvantaged state. I think really need a place. So it's a very existential issues. And if we go back to the last several years, I think, even since the uh, DCA, the Defense Corporations Agreement, was expired, I think Singapore was kept, uh, doing an exercise in Indonesian water. And if we go through the headline news, there has been a lot of protests uh, from the Indonesian Navy. There has been a lot of protests by the Indonesian uh, Army that Singapore uh, stopped exercising the military exercise in Indonesian uh, archipelagic waters because you don't have the rights because of the pending of the agreement. So it's really uh, important in a sense that if, if it's not there, then when Singapore keep, keep and keep and practicing the military training activities in Indonesian archipelagic waters, and it may also create a, a possible frictions between two countries when one country argue that they have their rights uh, and, and, and Indonesia keep protesting. So I think it is very much uh, important for the bilateral relationships between Indonesia and Singapore. So that's why I think how it is very important to be interpreted clearly and how the agreement, I think, should be put into realizations. Was there any official diplomatic activity as a result of that from the Indonesian side? Or was it mostly just you know, people complaining to reporters yeah, and I that think, being published? Yeah, I think there has been a serious uh, diplomatic notes uh, from the Indonesian uh, Minister of Defense, as well as the Singapore Minister of Defense. When I did a research, I read even like the diplomatic correspondence where the Singapore Minister of Defense uh, very much urged Indonesia to put it into clear so there has been a diplomatic notes, I think, not only from the military, but also from not only from public protests, but also a diplomatic, a formal diplomatic exchange. Even I heard that uh, Singapore might challenge Indonesia to the international tribunals in regards to the interpretation of Article 51. So there has been a series and a series of, of diplomatic communications between the two countries. No, it's not only involved in public sentiment in, or in the media. And then aside from Singapore and Indonesia, where else do you see a lot of Article 51 activity? I, I don't think there uh, exists anywhere else in the world other than the uh, Indonesia and Singapore. Because, you know, uh, the articles on archipelagic waters was basically drafted for Indonesia. Even Indonesia is the only country that have uh, archipelagic sea lanes right now. So it's very much designated for in Indonesia. And in particular, if you go through the negotiating history of Article 51, is jointly drafted uh, by Indonesia and Singapore. When we were uh, having a conference uh, with Aaron, uh, some of colleagues uh, at the Apoila conference are asking that if we actually let Singapore interpret uh, or consider they have a legitimate activities under Article 51, then other countries may also claim that they have their uh, legitimate activities. But I don't think that's a, quite a relevant argument because, of course, to know what really in the Article 51, we have to go through the negotiating history. And if you go through the negotiating histories, of course, not all countries will have the legitimate claims uh, in, in saying that they have the rights to uh, conduct uh, traditional military training uh, exercises in Indonesian archipelagic water. So it's basically very much related to the histories. And I, and I think um, no other countries, I think, can can 
claim later on that they have the traditional military training in Indonesian archipelagic waters. Aaron, if you might want to add something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, just just that you know, if there is uh, archipelagic states in other regions and and people have expertise on that, we'd be most interested to hear if there is other practices. We're not personally aware of them, but yeah, it's just also then worth noting the other conditions that are attached in Article Fifty One. So the other key conditions are that it is a right of an immediately adjacent neighboring state. Um, so this is basically interpreted as sharing a, a boundary, uh, a territorial or a maritime boundary area, um, and that is limited to certain areas of the archipelagic waters. Um, so it's not like you get this right and then it, it gets, it's everywhere. It's in within a specific area sort of agreed between the parties, either on the basis of precedent or on the basis of the needs uh, of the states. So here we see that the, the certain area between Singapore and Indonesia has moved to accommodate the interests of Singapore and Indonesia in terms of maritime navigation or fisheries, where continued activities in, in the original area would have been detrimental to both states. And um, so they've sort of agreed to sort of shift it a bit. So yeah, those also point against other states sort of claiming this right uh, within at least Indonesian waters. But that's not to say that other legitimate interests might arise in the future or other immediately adjacent states might along with the archipelagic state, consider the application of Article 51. It's just today we don't really see that. Maybe Article 51 can also interpret by Indonesia and Malaysia in terms of not the legitimate activities, but the traditional uh, fishing rights. So uh, Indonesia and, and, and Malaysia, indeed, we have a, a bilateral agreement. We have a bilateral treaties on the traditional fishing rights, but it's not the other legitimate activities part, but more on like in the fishery sectors, which we have then the implementing agreement, a bilateral lease on how the traditional fishing rights should be respected, but not the other legitimate activities. Well, I'm sorry. That's all that we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Aaron Honeybull and Aristio Darmawan. Uh, Aristio, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn, Aristio Darmawan, or Twitter, ARA. S-T-O-O. I'm currently also a visiting research fellow with the uh, RSIS, so I'm going to be having a research project on Indonesia and maritime security with the RSIS in the uh, following month. Thanks again. And uh, Aaron, where can we find you and what's your next project? Hi, yeah, so you can find me at the, at the website of the Max Planck Foundation, mpfpr.de, perhaps not as famous as the Max Planck Institute, um, but we do focus on sort of applied research. Um, so currently we're very fortunate uh, to be working with the ASEAN Secretariat and ASEAN Member States under this cooperative framework agreement concerning the law of the sea. Um, so hopefully we'll have our final workshop at the end of November addressing maritime security, uh, which, yeah, I'm very excited to be back at my roots where sort of my master thesis first addressed this in terms of the uh, definition of piracy. And yeah, you can, of course, catch me also on Twitter. And yeah, otherwise, I'm always happy to have a chat. Uh, so reach out via email, Twitter, uh, find me at a conference coffee break or email us at demarion.net where we try and share sort of news on uh, state practice or conferences and events that might be of interest to the Lord C community. Well, thank you both again for joining us to listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.